0: Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 174. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu. Malkinu, our father, our king. Lord, we come before you once again tonight asking that you'll be with us in spirit, that you'll guide us into truth, and that you'll help us to retain the things that we are learning. Give us a heart to um, serve one another, even if it's via this distanced uh, mechanism, this vehicle known as the uh, the internet. Um, Nevertheless, Lord, we're thankful that we're able to meet together with people using the technology of the internet and podcasting and things like that. And we'll be be careful Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week, every Saturday late afternoon. I hope you can join us um, week after week for these live studies. About 30 minutes from now, I'll give you some more details on what the live studies entail. But look, for now, let's jump right back into our Matthew 9 um, study, 9, 14 through 17. And we're right in the middle of talking about Pastor John Piper's uh, comments on the verse that we are examining, Matthew 9, 14 through 17. So last week I've, uh, begin to um share my own perspective on what pastor piper shared or what he said. So let's jump into that. This is um like part 26 I think if you're if you're looking at the individual um uh videos that I upload to YouTube, the little 5-minute uh shorts that I upload afterwards, um this I believe should be part 26 of a f- another five-part set of videos this week. So as I always say, make sure you catch all five parts. Uh, so you can catch the full uh, gist of what I'm talking about. Let me back up real quick and just read this first paragraph, and then we'll push us into the where we left off. I, I, I want um, people to follow my thoughts, and I say, um, please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say in this particular commentary that I wrote. I sincerely appreciate pastor piper's passion for holiness and uh, at the time that i wrote the commentary i was currently engaged in a study of more of his sermons in an effort to strengthen my own personal walk with yeshua and so um uh as i say in my commentary on that note i highly recommend his desiring god series of teachings of course if you're familiar with pastor Piper, you know that his entire ministry is entitled desiring god right his website is desiringgod.org i say however if this single sermon that i'm um uh, referencing is an accurate representation of his general theology in this area then i cannot help but disagree with his application of these particular verses as if yeshua were saying that his own new teachings right we're talking about the parable in Matthew 9:14 through 17 that Yeshua left us the parable about the old wine and the new wine the parable about the unshrunk patch and the um, clothing that would get sewed onto it and then of course that those two came right on the heels of the um, the question about why do Yeshua's disciples not fast and why John's disciples do fast and the Pharisees as well why why is everyone in, in Yeshua's day fasting but Yeshua's disciples and Yeshua himself, they're not fasting. And of course, Yeshua's answer was, hey, the bridegroom is here, right? Meaning himself. And so you don't want to fast when the bridegroom's there because weddings are a time of joy and merrymaking. There's going to become a time when you're going to mourn and when you're going to fast, right? When the bridegroom's taken away, of course, Yeshua kind of hinting at the fact that he's going to have to leave after he's um, hung on a cross. But um, they didn't catch all of that right then. But Nevertheless, all of that moves in moves his audience into his, his twin parable about the um, unshrunk cloth, the, I'm sorry, the unshrunk patch and the um the old and new wine and the wineskins and things like that. So um, Pastor Piper interpreted the parable as if Yeshua is trying to say, I've got this new way of fasting that I want to explain to you is 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 here. And it's because of the reality of the kingdom of God being here now. And so there's no need to um, keep going with the old kind of traditional Jewish way of fasting, where it's associated with mourning. Let me introduce a new way of fasting, which is going to involve joy. Um, you're not going to be sorrowful. Uh, your fast is still going to be serious. I'm filling in, right, for all of the the things that Yeshua didn't say in this parable, and I'm filling in kind of paraphrastically with what Uh, Pastor Piper said earlier in my commentary, if you want to scroll back up, you can read it yourself. But basically, um, Pastor Piper talked about the new wine and and the patch and things representing uh, being tied to the new way of fasting. And so that was the gist of what he's saying. But um, along with that, Pastor Piper made a little bit of a hint of the idea that the whole Jewish um, way of life had run its course and needed kind of a, um, a reworking or um, um, a, a restart, a reboot, all right, a refresh. And Yeshua is going to come and provide that new way of thinking, that new lifestyle. And so I say in my commentary, it's as if Yeshua were saying that his own new teachings have come to, quote unquote, replace the old Jewish system of relating to God. So this is where I was not quite a hundred percent sure where pastor piper was going in his sermon he didn't really elaborate that much he just kind of hit the iceberg and the tip of the iceberg and so um i say uh, in my commentary again i must stress that i do not disagree with pastor piper's concept of hungering and thirsting after the holiness of god right i mean if you've listened to any of pastor piper's messages you know what i'm talking about the guy is absolutely on fire for god and it's addictive it's um it's infectious which is all good thing right it's 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 a it's a Refreshing take on Bible study, expositional preaching. To listen to someone who's not just droning on and on about the details of of, of what they, you know, what they think the Bible says, but to actually challenge the listeners to press in, uh, press in closer to God uh, for a, a more meaningful and richer relationship with Yeshua. So, Pastor Piper is going to always hit those high marks, and so for that reason, um, you can't go wrong if you listen to his sermons. I say in my commentary, indeed, we must. Pant after our Lord as if our very life depends on it. For in point of fact, it does, right? Nothing short of revival is what we really need in the body of Messiah. And Pastor Piper is on the right track. He's one of those rare few that's not afraid to... Um, uh, get in your face and, and, and point out sin, and to 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 let you know that hey, God's holiness demands a higher walk, and so all of this this um, watered down, slippery slope type of Christianity that's um, permeated um, you know the evangelical America, especially American culture. I'm not sure exactly how it is around the world in other countries, but at least in America, uh, it's where it's such a um, you know we're only two steps behind the world basically in, in terms of morality and ethics and standards um, and and quote-unquote righteousness, it's it's pathetic. Um, it's no wonder that we don't have any real Holy Spirit power in our churches these days. And um, we've got to cry out for revival. And it starts with personal revival, which will lead to corporate revival revival in our churches. Um a quote from Acts 1728 really hits the nail on the head. For in him we live and move and exist. And I think that we as the the body of Messiah we've lost that. We we don't realize that we are vitally connected to Yeshua as the um the, the divine and we are the branches, like he mentioned in, in John. And if we lose sight of that fact like we have, we continue to stay lost in that darkness, we're we're are we losing our salvation now? I'm not talking about that, but we're losing our power, we're losing our witness, we're losing our effectiveness as salty witnesses in this world, right? We're supposed to be salt and light to those around us, and yet um, we're so um, mired in in uh, complacency uh, that, uh, you know, no one really's really really willing to listen to us. So, uh, I continue my commentary. In all fairness, I think that Pastor Piper correctly identifies one of the chief functions of the Torah, right? Listen up, all right? So he, he's he's he got this part. So again, I'm going to give him high marks and credits for this. I'm not going to say, hey, don't listen to Pastor John Piper. I'm going to say the opposite. Go and listen to this guy, right? Uh, head on over to his website at... um um DesiringGod.org, and it doesn't really matter where you jump in. You're going to be fed no matter which sermon you listen to. I think that um, he he correctly identifies this function of the Torah, and what? And that it was given by Hashem to identify and condemn sinful behavior. Unlike many of these other, um, some of these pastors out there that are kind of downplaying the role of the Old Testament, or downplaying the role of the law of God in the life of a believer, Pastor Piper is going to highlight the Word of God. Of course, all of the scriptures are God-breathed. I'm sure he he believes that, but he himself, I say in my commentary, he himself singles out this particular function of the Torah in a sermon called "quote How to Use the Law Lawfully to Bear Fruit for God." End quote. So that was one of the sermons that you can actually go listen to. I listened to it myself when I put this commentary together, and it was I was blessed and refreshed and uh, edified by the statements. Um, And in that particular sermon, he makes these insightful remarks. So let me pull a quote from that sermon. Uh, He says this, quote, The main point here is that the law has a convicting, condemning, restraining work to do for unrighteous people. He continues, but for the righteous, right, those of us who are in Messiah, for people who have come to Christ for justification and... Those who have come to Christ, um, he continues, for the inner spiritual power to love, right? This is Pastor Piper's sentiments. This role of the law has passed, right? It's gone. And let me clarify, um, his words are, are, are self-evidently um, accurate, but my own uh comment is that there's a function of the torah that condemns sin and whether you're a believer or you're the unbeliever that function is going to stay it's not going to be uplifted in in christ now once once you come to believe in jesus suddenly the Torah is not going to Uh, stop condemning you or condemning the sin in your life or pointing its bony finger at you and and highlighting where you fall short. God's standard doesn't change once you become a believer. In fact, it's the opposite. Once you become a believer, his standards actually become more strict. They become more stringent, more um, uh, necessary and uh, relevant to you. Um, Indeed, before you knew who Yeshua was, um, the Holy Spirit couldn't speak to you the way that he can as a believer right your ears weren't in tune to his voice Uh, your eyes were still blinded and you were still following your own way of life and doing things the way you wanted to do them and so therefore uh, perhaps you ignored conviction perhaps you ignored that conscience that God gave you that told you that what you're doing is wrong but now that Messiah has taken up residency within you this is all over the New Testament you have a witness you have um, the the inner Um, Spirit of God to help you not only make wiser choices, but you're now culpable in a way that you weren't before. Because you've got the words, you've got the truth, your eyes have been opened, and you can see the path before you. Um, And uh, with Messiah's help, of course the Spirit of Messiah in you, you can now begin to sanctify your life you can begin to walk in a way that's different different than the world had you walking before you got saved so the law has this role and it's a necessary role and pastor piper hits this right on the money and he continues by saying From now on, the place where we seek the power to love is not the law of commandments, but the gospel of Christ. And that sounds, end quote, by the way, and that sounds almost a little like a dig, like he's, like he's, like, what do we say? Like he's, um, he's, um putting the torah down a little bit like like he's 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 saying that the law of god has lost its effectiveness right we don't seek the power to love in the law of commandments but the law of christ I, i understand the gist of what he's trying to say so those of you who are torah positive torah you know obedient types of people don't get the wrong idea where he says we don't seek the power of love in the commandments there is love in the commandments indeed Israel was commanded to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbors yourself, right? The the great two that Yeshua... Um, reiterated, those are found squarely in the Torah, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6 for loving the Lord your God and Leviticus um, for a love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not that the Torah doesn't contain commandments to love. It's that the Torah outside of the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't have it in itself the power to motivate you to love the proper way. Um, by the way, those of you who are with me in the live class, I think someone's microphone came unmuted. Uh, I'm not sure exactly who, but can everyone go and check your microphones to make sure if not, I'll hit the the um, uh, the uh, universal mute on my side and everyone will get muted that way. But I'm giving you guys a chance to mute, mute on your own. So going back to our studies, um, looking at, what the Torah does for us outside of Messiah. It commands us to do the right thing, but it doesn't have the power to change the heart and to change the mind and the the, the volition of a person. That's the role of the Holy Spirit in us. The Torah is that standard that the Holy Spirit uses. The Torah is the Tool used by God to help bring about that change. The Torah in and of itself cannot bring that change about. Um, mentally and intellectually, it can uh, guide you. And there are people who are disciplined enough outside of the Holy Spirit to actually follow in, ra- in the path of righteousness. And so um, of their own, they can you can do the right thing for a measured amount of time. But ultimately, God designed the Torah to simply bring you into a knowledge of Messiah, and then to be that role, that uh, tool of the Holy Spirit to continue to lead you in paths of righteousness and sanctification. It's a sanctification tool used by the Holy Spirit. It was never ever designed to be a salvation tool, right? Don't ever get that mistake. Don't ever make that mistake. Don't get that part about the Torah wrong. It it is, it is, it has never been, and is never, as not. Uh, it it. It neither was, nor is, nor ever will be a salvation tool, a salvific tool. It's not that type of um, document. So Pastor Piper, uh, I'm sorry, not Pastor Piper, but myself, I, I say, indeed, the whole thrust of that particular sermon, the one that I'm referencing from Pastor Piper, is to show in his own words that quote, and here's another quote from Pastor Piper, the path to love is not works of law. And I really like that. Let me interject. If you correctly understand works of law as not mere, um, what we might call human in, human effort. Um, we could say legalism, but Judaism wasn't wielding the Torah in the same wooden fashion that the church likes to imagine that she was. Nevertheless, it still amounted to self effort or what Paul termed as the flesh. The phrase works of law is more of a kind of a technical term that I don't want to get into right now, but just suffice to say, um, the path to love, genuine, heartfelt, Messiah, spirit led love, that can only take place if you have surrendered your will to Yeshua himself, if you'd allowed God to take up residency within you via his spirit, then... The path to loving not only god but loving your neighbors yourself then you can fulfill the righteous requirement that the torah is putting before you like paul says in romans chapter eight the first say five to ten verses there in that chapter this is how we're able to to fulfill the righteous requirement of the torah it's by allowing yeshua to take his place in our heart and his spirit to fill us so that we can not only love god properly but love one another properly. And that's what Pastor Piper's getting at when he says the path to love is not works of the law. He's not, again, he's not trying to slam Torah obedience. He's not trying to slam um, loyalty to Torah or covenant loyalty or what the Jews of Yeshua's day would call, or Paul's day, would call um, covenantal gnomism or works of the law or any of that stuff. Um, It had its limitations. It had its pitfalls. But in the end, um, the Jews are simply seeking to be loyal to God and they're doing their best to try to do what God's asking them to do. To that regard, they're they they've got the right mindset, right? They're in the might, they're in the proper mindset. They go wrong when they think that Torah is really the end all, be all, do all, uh, which kind of um props up jewish um lifestyle jewish identity jewish membership and jewish responsibility to keep the torah uh, minus any gentile participation and things like that so let's continue pastor piper says quote the path to love is not works of law in other words, these are Pastor Piper's sentiments, in other words, the way to pursue love is by focusing on the transformation of the heart, right, catch this, catch this, by focusing on the transformation of the heart and the conscience and the awakening and strengthening of faith. So again, it's great if you're pursuing Torah. If you don't believe in Jesus just yet, if you don't really know God in the pardon of your sins, if you don't know him yet, at the very least, if you're pursuing Torah obedience or Torah loyalty or covenant loyalty or something like that, that's a proper path to be on. That's the train you want to be on, right? That's the train you want to catch. That's part of the the, the, the the mechanism that's going to bring you into a knowledge of Messiah as God breaks down your will as you're try, seeking to be obedient to him. He's going to use the Torah as a tool to lead you to Messiah. That's the way Paul describes one of the Torah's functions in the book of Galatians. It's going to get in your face and show you you over and over again where you fail God and where you fall short right that's one of its roles but at the same time it's going to continue to show you who the teacher of righteousness truly is by highlighting um, your sin your shortcomings your failings and the fact that God has a substitute for your sin the fact that God has a an answer to the dilemma that you're going to find yourself in as you get closer and closer to God, as you keep pressing in to know God, if you indeed truly are seeking Him and not just seeking your own uh, self righteousness, right? Like a lot of people are blinded to that. Unfortunately, many Torah observant Jews aren't really serving God in their Torah obedience. They're actually serving themselves, or they're serving their rabbis, or they're serving their communities, or they're serving Judaism as a religion, or, you ready for this, they're serving the Torah itself. They have many, many idols. There are numerous idols in rabbinic Judaism. I was listening to a, a, a rabbinic Jewish, uh, watching a rabbinic Jewish YouTube video about a, a celebration of, of uh, bringing a certain amount of um, Talmud study to a close and embarking on a new round of of talmudic study right they they reached kind of a milestone and i was watching it it's it, it happened this year and i was watching it and there was you know rabbi after rabbi hit the pulpit and talked about how great all their teachers are were in the past and how great the talmud was and how great the torah is and how great you know jewish life is and i'm thinking good grief where's god and all of that right they're their, their their idolatry is wrapped around themselves, right? The, the the rabbis of past, the rabbis of of ancient teachings, um, and the the how that they make those those guys into idols, um, and the idolatry of serving the 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 Torah itself as an idol, the, the idolatry of serving the tongue mood, the idolatry of serving Judaism and keeping the commandments itself has become an idol, and so shame on them. It looks all spiritual on the outside, might even look rather even um inspiring and i'm not trying to judge them and say that they don't um they don't have any place in god's plans but pastor piper's hitting the the heart of it right here the transformation of the heart the transformation of our spirit the transformation of the conscience the way paul termed it in uh, romans 12 be transformed by the renewing of your mind right if that doesn't take place, and there's not that, what Pastor Piper calls the awakening and strengthening of faith, well then, you're going through motions that aren't going to improve your lifestyle. In the end, you're going to be disappointed when you meet God, because He's going to say to you in Yeshua's words, Depart from me, I never knew you, right? Matthew 25, as He separates the sheep from the goats. You you, you don't know God if you don't know Yeshua. That's the bottom line. So, Pastor Piper continues, Love is not pursued first or decisively by focusing on a list of behavioral commandments and striving to conform to them. And again, speaking to unbelieving Jewish people or unbelieving Israel, this hurts, this hurts, right? This cuts to the quick. God is saying in his word, right? If you want to pursue me in righteousness, then you first need to surrender, your own will, you need to to let go of the steering wheel and let me take control, and I will take over I will transform you I'll renew your mind i'll I'll move my spirit in I'll do that heart surgery that is that um, uh, Ezekiel talks about that Jeremiah hints at um, removing the heart of stone and, and replacing with the heart of flesh, the heart that God can write his words on right that type of transformation is going to allow love to be pursued in its proper fashion and decisively like uh pastor piper says by folk by not by focusing on a list of behavioral commandments remember paul said in second corinthians chapter three he talks about we serve the newness of of the spirit, not in the the oldness of the letter, right? It's because the letter kills, but the spirit brings life. I'm paraphrasing what he talks about there in, in two Corinthians chapter three. This idea of old covenant to new covenant for a believer doesn't mean that we get rid of the Torah, right? Paul says again in Romans three, near the very end of the chapter, do we do we make void the law of God because of faith? Uh, you know, God forbid. On the contrary, we we uphold the law, so the law is still established for us as believers. The the primary difference for us is that the law can no longer con- condemn us, right? It can no longer has that power in our life. It can convict us of sin, and it should, because we're not perfect yet. But we're not condemned as sinners because Messiah has taken that payment, right? He was condemned on our behalf. The whole substitutionary atonement picture all over again that's found all throughout Paul's letters. So the idea of pursuing God by focusing on a list of behavioral commandments this this hurts rabbinic judaism's approach because they don't understand that by focusing on commandments instead of focusing on your first love yeshua then what you're doing is you're micromanaging the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. God in, envisioned the, whole, the the Torah to be walked out by the power of the Spirit, right? The Torah is still relevant for you as believers. We're designed to keep the Torah, but we're designed to do it by um, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by, by um, maintaining that. Uh, on our own, in, in and of our own power, in and of our own strength. Like I say, micromanaging it, you know, keeping a, a checklist of do's and don'ts, right? I check this off, and I think that I'm doing what God's asking me to do. There's a measure of obedience in that, but it's superficial. In the end, it's superficial. It's self-serving. Uh, it can even become idolatry if we're not careful. So you, you're not hearing me say, don't keep the Torah, right? I'm, not, I'm definitely not saying that. But what I am saying is that if you're going to be striving to keep the Torah, you better be doing it from a heart that's full of, of being filled with the Spirit, like Paul says in Ephesians, right? Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. That's a command. You want to keep the Torah? Start by being filled with the Spirit, and then let the Holy Spirit tell you how to keep the Torah. That's the way it's going to work. Pastor Piper uh, finishes by saying, This is what we must die to. And he's talking about dying to, striving to conform to a list of do's and don'ts as if it's this routine that we have to follow and we don't um, have any idea of what it means to love God and love our neighbor. In fact, here's a challenge, and I'll probably uh, close with this and we'll pick this up. Um, He he says, I say to these particular comments, I wholeheartedly agree. We'll pick this up next week, uh, starting in this paragraph. But in closing, let me say this. if you are striving to be Torah obedient or Shomer Mitzvot, right? You're striving to be more like Messiah by keeping the commandments. And you you're you're definitely on board with the two greatest, right? Love God, love your neighbor. Um just like Yeshua commanded. And yet you're you're you find yourself failing from time to time. Here's here's uh a, a, um a part of the um of the way this is going to play out, I'm, I'm saying I'm not saying this is going to be true for everybody, but what you're going to find is as you're pursuing God and as you're pursuing love for God and love for your neighbor, you're going to find that. Oftentimes, there, there might be a choice where you can keep what looks like a commandment of God for yourself personally, and yet you can make a sacrifice for someone else. You can, you can um, defer to other people, other believers, other people in your community, or your spouse, or your children. And so you give up your own personal freedoms, like say, I want to I dig into Bible study on my own, but um, you know maybe my spouse desires my attention, or requires my attention, or my community, um, or something like that. I'm not saying you're always going to have to pit the two against one another, but... What you're going to find that the spirit is going to lead you to sacrifice. The, the spirit is going to lead you to defer. The spirit is going to lead you to take the low path instead of always going the high path. Um, he's going to have you. When I say low path, I mean he's going to cause you to to not always want your ideas to be first and foremost. He's not going to want cause you, he's going to cause you to not always want your voice to be the more prominent one. He's going to continue to motivate you to build other people up and to to like. We learned in our roman study as we looked at romans 14 and romans 15 to defer to the other people to build the other brother up to to look out for his interests above your own Um, and this is indeed the model that paul is going to outline for us throughout the rest of his letters as well Um, is that like messiah became a servant to the jewish people romans chapter 15 the first say eight or nine or ten verses we too must be servants to one another and so um, that's the spirit-led life that you're going to find yourself engaged in as you're um, becoming more and more Torah obedient. You're not going to be put off when when some of your own um, personal preferences are uh, not met and needs are met. You're going to find joy in the fact that you have helped other people. You've prayed for other people. You've you've um, encouraged others. You've you've sacrificed your own time so that other people, other believers, uh, first and foremost, have been in a place. Where they can have their needs met, and so that's really the, the the walk of of the spirit. That's the walk of Torah. That's the walk of service. That's the walk of, of, of servitude. That's the one that was modeled by our Messiah Yeshua, and that's going to do it for our Matthew nine fourteen through seventeen. Uh, Judaism v Christianity. These are the Live Internet of Studies brought to you week after week. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at the Harvest Congregation, Tunua. The Harvest Congregation is located in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. And if you're not able to join us live, at least catch our YouTube videos that you can see on my screen right now that Pastor Mark puts out week after week. I also have a website that I would invite you to um, take a look at. Go to www.tatesatorah.com and uh, take a look at all those links that you can see on my screen right now. Those represent commentaries or uh, video, um, I'm sorry, a, a Bible series teachings um, uh, that I put together, that I've been putting together for the last 20 years or so. So um, uh, this isn't the entire list, right? These, these are just kind of like uh, chapters. So um, dive in and have at it. The resources are there and i'm uh, delighted to be able to make them available for you speaking of resources check out my youtube channel youtube.com forward slash c forward slash tete torah ministries all one word there and uh check out all the updates that i upload uh the videos that i upload daily um i'm quite the busy tour teacher and i'd be delighted if you hit my youtube channel If you do hit my channel, make sure you do all the things that you see bouncing around the screen right now. Subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, hit the thumbs up for all the videos that I know you're going to like. Leave me comments and then uh, share the, the content with all your friends and family in your social media network circles. These uh, live internet studies are brought to you week after week. Here's some of the brief details in case you are interested in joining us, and I hope you can join us. This is episode number 174 for March 19, uh, 2022 on the USA date side of the world. Saturday afternoons from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. is when we meet, so just set your time clock against the central standard time zone, and you'll be able to join us. We have an hour-long show that we bring to you, and it's chopped up into two 30-minute segments. We just got through going through the Matthew 9, 14-17 uh, study. That was part 6 of, of the um, study, but it was video number 26. That's a little confusing, part 6, number 26. Um but then the um, uh, the study is going to continue. In the next 30 minutes, we're going to look at exploring the Shema. It's kind of an apologetic um, study. Discussions on the issues of Trinity. We're in paper three. Who were does the Holy Spirit? We're in part 106 there tonight. And then if we've got time, sometimes we don't always catch the video. Sometimes we run out of time. Uh, from my short question, short answer live series, What is a Gentile? That's an interesting question. I hope you can stick around for the video. If we do, watch it. Important details Uh, if you'd like to join us week after week, need access to Skype somehow, you can click on that little blue Skype logo that you see on my screen right now, and it'll actually launch Skype in your browser. And then you just need to make sure you're at the same time that we're having a live study, and you can join us right there for our live studies. And if not, be sure to hit my website at tatesaytorah.com scroll to the very bottom and take a look at that um, uh, black footer section where you see some uh, Hebrew writing and prayerfully consider partnering with me to help bring these teachings to people around the world I'm in a place where I could sure use your financial assistance and so if the Lord's uh, laying it on your heart to help me out this would be great this is the way you can do it right here just click the little yellow donate button and that'll um, do all what you need there to launch the little tool necessary to to, uh, Donate to my ministry, and as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity and pick up where we left off. We're talking about social Trinitarianism and the way that the Orthodox, um, the Greek Orthodox Church, or the Eastern Orthodox believers interact with the idea of Trinity. And we've been using this kind of um uh triangles um that you guys can't see uh, those of you in my life class you can't see it but those in post-production can see it it's the idea that from a catholic perspective or the western church we kind of start with the idea of god the father and god the son as the two kind of important parts of the trinity uh in our in a triangle that's inverted so the the, the base is at the top where left to right we've got father on the left side and son on the right side of the top part of the triangle the 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 horizontal line and then when the triangle comes to point down below we've got the holy spirit down there that's i believe that's what the triangle looks like i'm not looking at it right now i'm just pulling it from memory but then when you compare this to the eastern orthodox model of trinity the triangle sitting right side up where at the top the apex part the point of the triangle is the father the Father is the kind of the more important part of the Trinity. And then below that, you know, to left and right, you've got Son and Holy Spirit off the left and right at the, at the two bottom parts. And so to your, to your average untrained, uh, uncaring, really, I, uh, meaning your average garden variety, a Gentile Christian uh, or uh, evangelical Christian, um, there's not a lot of difference between the two. I mean, whether you flip the triangle of right-side-up or upside-down, you at least you've got all three parts, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it is true that both East and West church groups both affirm Trinity. It's just one is uh, referred to Latin Trinitarianism, that's the one in the West, and one is referred to as Social Trinitarianism, uh, and that's the one in the East. And as I say in my commentary, indeed... As we observed from paper two above, Dr. Malto went on to explain, and he's a he's a Christian philosopher. He said Leftau, who's also another Christian philosopher, right? Um, Leftow has argued that among other problems with social trinitarianism, it actually risks collapsing into a form of Arianism because social trinitarianism posits multiple ways in which something may be divine. And so when we're talking about trinitarianism through the lens of social trinitarianism and the emphasis on the oneness of god with the kind of the supporting roles being played by the other two members so in the eastern model god is the source he's the source of trinity itself he's the source of everything he's the one from whom the son was begotten and he's the one from whom the holy spirit is pro has has proceeded right so uh begettle, begetting and procession take place from the father so the father is that top that apex of the triangle which is why the eastern model has the triangle sitting right side up where the point is pointing upwards whereas the um western model has the triangle inverted where the point is going down um, and so when we're talking about social trinitarianism we talk about the father being the source of all divinity in that in that mindset and so when we look at yeshua we have to figure out where his role is comes in and remember with arianism arianism is that form of heretical christianity that that popped up very, very early on in the 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century. Um, it was, it was. Well, I don't know if it, maybe it was 1st century, but at least 2nd, 3rd, and moving into the 4th century, the early church had to deal with this heretical perspective that Jesus was not fully divine, at least on the same level as God. He didn't have the same hypostasis as God. He had power, and he had divinity, but it was on a different level, and that's why we talk about different forms of divinity. For instance, if you have a conversation with a Unitarian Christian, like you know the likes of dr Dale tuggy or maybe a oneness Pentecostal maybe a Jehovah witness or a iglesia at cristo or a um um you know one of these other um uh, 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 unitarian type uh, uh, Christian groups that are non-trinitarian so the Unitarian some of them are going to tell you yeah Jesus has a divine Attribute about him, but it's not on the same level as God. Uh, uh, you've heard of the heresy of the greater and the lesser Yahweh, right? God is the greater Yahweh, YHVH, and Yeshua is the lesser Yahweh. I think Rabbi Ko- uh, Moshe Koniukowski is popular for coining this per- perspective of the greater and lesser Yahweh, which in my perspective is heretical. It's a kind of a form of either modalism or a form of Arianism. Arianism believed or taught that jesus was the greatest and highest creation of god this is actually the way that dr dale tuggy talks about jesus as well jesus is not god he's not eternally god instead he's a creature he was created by god in eternity past but at some point in eternity past meaning it's farther is it farther back than we know then we have time that was recorded but it nevertheless had an origin. And so he was begotten. He was brought into existence by God the Father, by the source. And then at a certain point in time, God bestowed or endowed him with um like power so that he could create so that he could create the rest of the universe or um he was divinized if you want to put it that way some people think that yeshua didn't receive his divinity until after he had died and was raised again and then god divinized him then right gave him div- divine status and now he can be worshiped as god and called god with like a small g with like the Jehovah's Witness talk about in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was a god right a small g-o-d that's that's all of that is arianism all of that is a a, a, a just a, a modern twist on the idea that jesus is not fully 100 percent god he's a lesser god he's a lesser deity and that's why left out was talking about hey you need to be careful when you're talking about social trinitarianism and and elevating god to the point that jesus can't fit in the same circle as god so uh positing multiple ways in which something may be divine so uh that's that's i'm not saying that greek orthodox people think that way i'm just saying that it's one of the dangers of the um social trinitarian model let's kind of accelerate and move um uh further into this i only have i think two short paragraphs as i'm scrolling down to the pages three paragraphs and then we're basically done with the social trinitarian uh, jehovah's witness um uh greek orthodox uh look so let me just kind of read and i'll try not to stop and comment as much because i think it's self-explanatory guys ready here we go. At this point, these are my own words. One may be inclined to ask as to how all of this information on Eastern Orthodoxy and social trinitarianism is related to the Latter-day Saints view that we looked at earlier on the Holy Spirit and why should the average evangelical Protestant Christian even care? Right? I mean, um if if we're if if we are if we evangelical Protestants are fully convinced of that Jesus is fully God, right? We're not, you know, Christadelphians. We're not Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. We're not Latter Day Saints. We're not Iglesia ni Cristo and 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 um oneness Pentecostal or or Unitarians or any of that. Um, we're not monotheists. I'm sorry. We're not um monarchical trinitarian or we're not uh, dynamic mon- monarchyism or any of those other um i to make sure i'm getting my terminology there but what i'm trying to say is we, we believe in trinity we believe that jesus is god we believe in it's it's a mystery we don't understand how but if that's the point then why should why do we even care about all of these discussions all right here's what i have to say and again remember we're talking about the holy spirit not god or jesus at this point Here's what I have to say, well, as I have come to understand the pneumatology of the Latter-day Saints, by the way, pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit, as I've come to understand their, their understanding of the Holy Spirit, they hold to a position that, at least to me, closely resembles many standard Christian Trinity models, both Catholic and Protestant models. Now, that might be a little shocking to you if you have a Jehovah's Witnesses or a Latter day Saint or Mormon person uh, arrive at your door. And I kind of lump them together a bit at times in my study. I know they're different groups the Latter day Saints and the Jehovah's Witnesses. I know they're two different groups, um, but. Um, there's some similarities in their theology, and they're they're both considered cult groups by mainstream Protestant Christianity. So that's why I tend to lump the two of them together. I'm sure they probably wouldn't appreciate me uh, putting them together in the same boat. But when I review their position on the Holy Spirit, I was. Shockingly surprised to find such um, similarity to the way that they describe the Holy Spirit to uh, many of my own beliefs. Now there are some specific differences, so let's look at this. I mean, um, you don't want to just uh, say, "Well, yeah, let's sit down and have a chat with them. They're safe, you know, no problem." There's a lot of danger in their theology, and so let's let's highlight some of that. So I say, however, specifically, the Latter Day Saint model appears to bear an Uncomfortable resemblance to the Greek Orthodox model we just examined. Now, I say uncomfortable in quotes, and you know, I'll, I'll explain this here in a bit. Albeit, when examining the specific language of the Latter day Saints versus Eastern Orthodox models, right? So, let's compare those two. The LDS, the Latter day Saints affirmation, as we're going to see below, it appears to present language that's way too close to outright confessing as i say the heresy known as tritheism or tritheism now again that's that's the error where we say that there's outright three gods god the father god the holy spirit i'm sorry god the father god the son god the holy spirit are three separate distinct incoherent god beings to the point that we can worship the three and it, the math really is 1 plus 1 plus 1 and we have three. And this, of course, is heretical according to um, Orthodox, not with a capital O, not Greek Orthodox, just Orthodox as in accurate uh, biblical theology. There are no three gods. There's only one God. And this is going to be something that we Protestant Evangelicals, we Orthodox Trinitarians, we monotheistic believers are going to stand our ground on we're not going to budge there are not three gods there's only one God and yet there are three persons even though the word person doesn't show up in the Bible I understand that and thus the challenge is understanding how God can be one yet three yet one right that's that's the mystery when we look at all of the different heresies that plagued the early church and the ones that they had to deal with tritheism or tritheism the, the, the pronunciation goes both ways that's why I keep going back and forth this is, what I say, a belief in three separate gods. This is something that the LDS uh, theology uh, skates dangerously too close to, in my opinion. Thus, I say, germane to our short digression here on Latter-day Saints um, pneumatology, study of the Holy Spirit, is the point, in fact, that they believe the Holy Spirit to be the third distinct member of the Godhead, and that he possesses a body of spirit so are you catching that according to what i understand and we're going to make a quote from their um statement of beliefs here in a moment they believe that the holy spirit is the third distinct member of the godhead and that he possesses a body of spirit i don't quite understand how their spirit can have a body but that's that's terminology that they use that's why it's in in, that's why it's underlined and in quotes and i say that this is in distinction to the father and the son who have bodies and are tangible like human beings again this gets really weird in my uh opinion of of theology when it comes to what the bible talks about i mean the father and the son have bodies that are tangible like human beings right don't understand where they get that out of the bible but They do. So according to what appears, in my opinion, to be their official, and I put that in quotes because I wasn't sure if it is or not, but what appears to be their official denomination website, here's what they provide under their, quote, statement of beliefs, in quote, section. All right, so let's read uh, part of the Latter-day Saints uh, theology. Um, Here's what they have to say. Quote, like many Christians. Notice right away, by the way, they say, like many Christians. They're really trying to get you to understand that we're not dangerous. We're not really cultish. We're not really someone that should be avoided. Our theology is not too out in the field. We're like other Christians, right? We're like many Christians. In other words, welcome us in among us. We have some differences, but hey, we're all, we all have differences. We all have our different denominations, but can't we just all worship together? And you know what? I say no. I say no. I think their their theology is dangerous enough that they do not need to be included in our worship circles as as uh, uh, mainstream Christians. I, I I'm not saying we should avoid them at all costs, but you know we they need Messiah as well. We need to witness to them, show them the light, but. Uh, should I sit down and fellowship with them as if they're the on the same level as Christianity as, as other Protestant evangelicals and mainstream Orthodox Christians? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think they're, they're, their theology warrants caution. So let's listen to it, okay. They say we believe in God the Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Now stop just because someone says they believe in God the Father, the Son Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that they're a Christian and it doesn't even mean that they're a Trinitarian, right? All those other groups I keep naming Unitarians, um, you know, Iglesia Ni, Christio, Ni Cristo, uh, Oneness Pentecostal, um, you know, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, uh, um, Worldwide Church of God, or some of these other groups. I think I'm, I'm just naming off a few that pop into my head. Um, uh, they're not Trinitarian. To the degree that they believe that um there's one god and three persons on the contrary they believe there's one god and three fill in the blanks i don't know what they call the other um parts of what we would call the persons of god uh as we're going to see from the the, the, the latter day saints um jesus is not the same jesus that we've worshipped and the holy Spirit's not the same holy spirit so let, let me let's let them describe it so they believe in god the father the son jesus christ and the holy spirit however they say we don't believe in the traditional concept of the trinity Now, I at least give them credit for telling you right up front what they do and don't believe, at least so you can be forewarned and make your decision right there, right? Here's what they say. We believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are three separate beings. Ah, 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 there it is. Three separate beings who are one in purpose. Now, it sounds Trinitarian, but they say not the traditional Trinitarian way that you're used to describing it, three separate beings. It sounds like they're skirting the edge of Trithism but at the same time trying to pass themselves off as Trinitarian and not Tr- uh, Trith- Trithitarian. Trithitarian? I think I'm making up word. I don't think Trinitarian really exists, but you guys understand what I'm trying to say. Here's what they, they continue. The church's first article of faith, and they're talking about their church, not the body of Messiah, uh, your mainstream Catholic church, or Greek Orthodox church, or... Um, uh, maybe they maybe they do. Maybe they are talking about that. I, I, I'll have to go back and look that up again. I think they're talking about their church. They say, quote, we believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. And that sounds like our church, not their church, right I, it does sound like you know either the Athanasian Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or one of those other creeds that most uh, Protestants or Catholics would or even a Greek Orthodox would pray um, so let me go back and research that that 'll be my homework assignment for this week to see which church they're talking about? Are they talking about their church, Latter-day Saints? Right. Remember, they're called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, these are a church in their own name, right? LDS, Latter-day Saints, the church. Maybe they mean their church and not the church as in Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Greek Orthodox. So, I'll have to go back and look that up. But anyway, they go on to say, we believe they are three distinct personages, not one singular being. That's confusing. Didn't they just say that we believe they're all three separate beings but are one purpose, but they're not one single being. Okay, So don't they don't believe in one God according to what they say, one singular being. We call them the Godhead. Same language that Christians use. Each member of the Godhead, sounds like three gods to me, each member of the Godhead has a specific role. Sounds like social Trinitarianism to me uh or what we might call um uh economic trinity right economic trinity versus onto ontological trinity but um each member of the god has a specific role united in the purpose of bringing all of god's children back to his presence again sounds very loving sounds very innocent but let's keep reading the holy ghost right we're in our study on the spirit now, so that's why we're highlighting this part. The Holy Ghost is the messenger and revealer of the Father and the Son. Um, it's interesting that they say He's the messenger and revealer of the Father and the Son. Unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses perspective, if I recall. I'll look this up again, but from memory, if I remember, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the Holy Spirit is not a separate person or a, a separate messenger, like we Trinitarians talk about. And instead, the Jehovah's Witnesses describe the Holy Spirit as being either the impersonal force or power of God that emanates from God's fingertips, like like <laughs> like the Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars lore shoots. Purple uh, lightning from his fingertips to torture Luke, right in that scene where Luke and Darth Vader were fighting in, in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Maybe I'll flash a little uh, uh, snippet from there again on the screen. I thought that was kind of humorous, but you guys understand. So, according to Jehovah's Witness theology, if I remember, the Holy Spirit is not the third person of the Trinity, and he's not even really God's very own Spirit. He's just this impersonal power that God can wield. Like I said, like a like a lightning bolt that He can shoot if He needs to or he can zap people with with wisdom or power or endow them with with certain abilities or whatever he needs to do Uh, so he can he's a talent or something like that But he's not really god's spirit and he's not even the third person of the trinity so unitarians would say the holy spirit is simply another way of saying god's very own spirit like i say ariel's spirit is ariel himself right there's no third person of the Trinity of Ariel that I can send forth to do my will and my bidding, right? I can't send my will outside of my body in order to go do the shopping or take out the trash or pick up the mail or anything like that. It doesn't work that way. My spirit is, is, is married to me, right? My spirit is stuck inside the body that I'm, that I'm carrying around and he ain't going anywhere. He stays here. He is me, right? So Ariel spirit is Ariel. So that's the same thing. Well, the, 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 um unitarian model of god is the same description the spirit of god is simply god himself and since god is described as a spirit it's very convenient the spirit of god and god are the very same being and there's only one of them there's not three of them but in contrast if i'm understanding lds theology here their pneumatology on the holy spirit the holy ghost the holy spirit he's the messenger and revealer of the father and the son a personage of spirit He helps us learn and recognize the truth of all things including the gospel. Okay, that part is somewhat accurate. I mean, if you're talking about just describing the functions and role of the Holy Spirit, right? He he does he does play the role of reminding us of the words of the Master, Messiah, um, bringing the words of Yeshua to recollection, and helping us to learn the truth of all things, right? They go on to say, it's through the Holy Ghost that God and Jesus Christ communi- communicate their love, comfort, and peace to us. And that that phraseology of the of the holy spirit being like a tool to communicate god's love and purpose and jesus love and purpose to us and things like that that's reminiscent of when we're describing the um the economic Model of the Trinity. Remember, there's two basic aspects of Trinity. When we're talking about trying to figure out what God is made of, we're talking about ontological Trinity. What's his nature? What's his his composition? How's he put together? Right? What are the sum of its parts of his parts? You know, how is it he could be one yet three yet one? That's that's an ontological discussion. But when we're simply talking about his roles and function in humanity and uh, the way he interacts with the created world to bring us humans into knowledge and into power and things like that then we're talking about the economy of god or economic trinity um they're two sides of one coin they're not like um social trinitarianism versus latin trinitarianism or anything like that those are two separate theological perspectives but ontological trinity and economic trinity are really uh, what most christians recognize as the single um orthodox version of trinity but sounds like uh the lds are describing the ontology i'm sorry the uh the the economies of God. When they're talking about the Holy Spirit, there they continue through. Or I'm sorry. Though the Godhead is made up of three distinct divine beings, the pause. Notice they say three distinct divine beings. That really rubs me the wrong way when it comes to describing God as one. If we're gonna say he's three distinct divine beings, then that conjures up. Uh, ideas of tritheism, or tritheism, three different gods, right? One of the gods' names is Father, one of the gods' names is Yeshua, Jesus, and the other, third remaining God, his name is Holy Spirit. Three distinct divine beings. Remember what Brian Leftow, the, ph- the Christian philosopher, said about the dangers of social Trinitarianism, of it collapsing into a form of what? Of Arianism, and Arianism is where you have one being, and then other lesser beings who have um, different yet distinct Powers than this single being, right? So that's that's. W- Remember the whole idea of social Trinitarianism in the Eastern Orthodox model of Trinity is that it focuses on the threeness of God, whereas in, in distinction or uh, con- contra distinction or comparison, the Latin Trinitarianism, A.K.A. Western view, A.K.A. the Catholic model. Uh, of uh, Trinitarianism focuses on the oneness of God and launches from oneness and tries to explain three whereas Social Trinitarianism, the one we're looking at now, the one that's held by Greek Orthodox and it seems to be similar to what Latter-day Saints are teaching, starts with three and focuses on, makes that the focus and then tries to explain how that God is also one. So uh god is made up of three distinct divine beings with certain different roles this is lds theology and characteristics they are perfectly united in purpose so even though he is three he's perfectly united right he that's how yeshua can say i and the father are one and in their theology it's three it's two distinct beings they all have this power that they have it's distinct but they're united in purpose right so they don't argue with one another or whatever they don't disagree and then in conclusion they say Um, This is their quote. They work in harmony to help us come to know God, to live righteously, to be forgiven, and ultimately return to live with them again. And notice in their pronouns, they and them, they're capitalized uh, with a capital T, the way that some Christians are used to capitalizing the H in he or his. Like I think the NASB Bible capitalizes the pronouns when it's talking about God or Jesus. It uses capital uh, H's for him or he or something like that i don't I'm, i don't find that uh, particularly off-putting just a little different to read it that way and they conclude by saying together they again capital t they work quote to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man ang yeah i know you're going what the immortality eternal life of man and that's according to a, a quote from I think it's one of their prophets, Moses one thirty nine. That is not the Moses that we're used to um, reading about. Um, I, I pause because they say the, the, the immortality, eternal life of man. They have some odd view of of how I think it's Latter Day Saint theology how that we can become gods ourselves if we if we attain to that level of godhead Godhood. That's why we talk about immortality and eternal life of of man so let me click on the um the footnote and and show you where i pulled that quote from is what which is why i said it i think it's somewhat official it comes from their website at www.churchofjesuschrist.org under an article entitled come unto christ i'm sorry uh under the article uh do latter-day saints believe in the trinity so go back and check out the link if you're curious on your own and see if you think it's heretical and so i think what we'll do is I won't finish uh this uh section. We'll um we'll conclude next week uh the section on Filioque, Eastern Orthodoxy, Latter day Saints. We'll conclude this section next week with these last one uh one prayer. can we should we conclude it? Could it next week? I think I will. I won't rush you rush you through it. We'll conclude it next week and uh um that'll do it on that part. So that'll do it for um, uh, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's begin to wind down and look at our liturgy for tonight. We read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Basically, we we read all four verses one by one. over the the course of the last, say, month or so. Um, And we highlighted, as we looked at, in this liturgy, we highlighted some of the phrases um, in each passage. We looked at the words new and covenant, right? Brit Hadasha and the ramifications and nuances of the word new and covenant, things like that, in verse 31. In verse um, 32, we kind of highlighted uh, some of the words, um, or the idea of... um, uh what was it what was different about this new covenant God says it's not like the covenant that I made um you know when I took them by uh, by the hand to bring them out of land of G-Bitch, they broke that covenant what, what was it that was different about this new covenant that God's promising than the old covenant they already made we looked at that go back and listen to all of the other uh uh, uh liturgy highlight videos that I put together And then in verse 33, God talked about putting his law within them, writing it on their hearts, right? Being their God and they will be his people. And so we highlighted... uh, I think it was just last week with Tim Hegg's commentary about putting the law of God on the inside. What does this mean that God was going to put his law within them? How does that work? And what's the ram- what are the ramifications? Uh, does this mean something God just puts the law of Moses in there? Or is there a new law? Is it the New Testament? Is it the law of Christ? Is it both? How did that work out? All right, we, we examined that as well. And then last, when we got to verse 34, we looked at the phrase, they shall all know the Lord in this new covenant offering that God God's telling us about, one of the features is that all will know the Lord. What does it mean to know the Lord? We talked about that phrase. as well. So hopefully you can go back and listen to those um, liturgy snippets and uh, glean what we could from those. But tonight, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm just going to read the English. Nope, I'm not even going to read the English. I read the English last week, and we didn't read any Hebrew or Greek. So what we're going we're to do tonight, we're going to read the Hebrew and the Greek. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull up a page from Tim Hague's commentary to the book of Hebrews, which shows the Hebrew, the LXX Greek, the Septuagint Greek, and then the book of Hebrews chapter 8 Greek, which is the quote from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, rendered from the... Uh, Masoretic Hebrew into New Testament Greek. So you'll see a column here in a moment. It'll be Hebrew, Greek, Greek. And the far left column is the uh, Masoretic Hebrew from Jeremiah. The middle column is the Greek Septuagint. And the far far right column is the uh, Greek text of Jeremiah. I'm sorry, of of, of Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. So you guys ready? Let's pull that up. Um, There we go. Alrighty, I hope you guys can see my screen. Give me a second, I don't think... There we go, alright, now it's showing up. Alright, so this is what we're looking at. Um, let me see if I can highlight which verses or what. Alright, first verse, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 in the Hebrew says, <speaking in> Hebrew> And verse 31 in the... Uh, LXX the Septuagint says idu chemerai erkantai phasein kurias kaidia thesamai to oiko israel kai to oiko juda dia theken and then the uh verse 8 of the um greek rendering of the book of hebrews chapter 8 starting in verse 8 says idu hemerai er kantai lege kurias kai sunteleso epiton oikon yisrael kai epiton oikon yuda dithakin kainain let's keep going verse 32 in the uh hebrew right there from jeremiah says lo chabrit asher karati Avotam, Biyom Hechesiki, Biadam Lahotsiam, Meeritz Mitzarim, Asher Hema, Heferu et Briti, Vanohi Baalti Vam Numadonai. Verse 32 in the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering of Jeremiah's passage, says, U kata ten diathay cane, hain diethay main. Tois patrasin auton in himera epilabamanu mu Tais keros auton exagagain autus ek geis Hati altoi uk enemenon in te diatheke mu kai ego hemalesa auton facin curias. I'm not used to this font, so it's a little challenging to, for me to read it, but we're going to make do. Uh, Verse 9 of the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 9 in the Greek says, and it should sound the same as what I just read, very similar. It says, this gives me a second chance to read it without making a mistake, right? Ukata ten dia thekane hain epoiesa tois patrasin outon in hemera epilabamanu mu tais keros auton exagagain outus ex gais hati autoi uk in mu kago he- auton lege kudias. let's keep going verse 33 in the Hebrew from the book of Jeremiah oops didn't mean to do that let's try that there we go verse 33. Jeremiah, chapter thirty one, verse thirty three. Kizot habrit, asher echrot, et bait Yisrael, Achre haimim hahim, neumadonai, natati et torati bakirbam of all libam, echtavena, the haiti lachem le the hema yeu le laam. Verse thirty three in the Septuagint. A uh, Greek rendering of the Hebrew says, Hati aute, he diathay kane, hain diathesomai to oiko yisrael, metatas himeras ekenas, face in curias, didus doso namus mu, ace tain, dianoian auton, kai epi kardias auton, grapso autus, kai esami autois, ace theon, kai autoi, esantai moi, ace laon. And then the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 8 verse. Ten in the Greek says Hatiao te he diathen he diathesomai to oiko Yisrael, metatas he meras ekenas, legi curias, didus namus, mu ace ten dianoion auton, kai epi caradias auton, epi grapso autus, kai esemai autois, ace theon kai autoi, as moi ace laon. Moving along. Final verse, uh, verse 34 in the book of Jeremiah in the Hebrew. says, "Velo ylamdu <speaking> du od ish <in> et re'ehu v'ish et ahiv le'mor, du'u et Adonai ki kulam yidu oti lemiktanam va'ad gadolam ne'um Adonai, ki eslak la'avonal ulchatatam lo ezkorod. The same verse, verse 34 in the Greek Septuagint, the LXX says, Kai u me didoxosin hekastaston politane autou, Kai hekastaston adelphan autou, legon, gnothitan kurian, hati pontes, e de susin, me apa, uh, auton, Kai heos megalu auton, hati heleos." Esamai, Tais, Adikai, Ais, Auton, Kai, Tone, Hamartion, Auton, U, Meganothi, Epi. And then the final two verses in the Book of Hebrews, Chapter. Eight, which is verse eleven and twelve. I don't know why they broke verse thirty up into two verses, just instead of just making it one verse. But talk to the translators, argue with them about that. Um, talk to the book of, and that's the translators that did that, not the writer to the book of Hebrews, as far as I understand. But the Greek says Kai made the ton out to Kai ton adelphon al legon kurian hati pontes <laughs> A de susin me apa micru geos megalu auton. And then verse twelve says Hati hileos esamaitais adikiais auton, kai ton hamartion auton, u me menesto eti. And that'll do it for the Hebrew and the Greek and the greek and um i was going to read this uh, jeremiah 3131 new i'm not going to read the whole thing there's a um a, a, an um a traditional Jewish perspective on this passage in Jeremiah 31, right? Christians are going to say this new covenant is made with Israel and with Judah and comes to fruition with the Gentiles and Jesus establishes it, and therefore the new covenant is basically what we're living under. And so every well-meaning Christian is going to understand that new covenant uh is rooted in Yeshua and has to do with Yeshua as the uh the mediator of the new covenant, and I would agree there. Of course, Rabbinic Judaism is gonna say no. That's not who the New Covenant with. It has nothing to do with Christianity or Christians or Jesus or any of that. So I was going to read the entire article here from Aish.com, uh, A-I-S-H.com. Um, but I'm not going to read that. Instead, uh, I just want you to uh, um, uh, be aware of this particular article. Um, you can go back and maybe read it on your own. Uh, let me see. Is there anything that I at least want to highlight from it? Um let's see there was something in here that I wanted you to see yeah okay this part of their commentary, and they're, again, they're going to disagree with Christianity, but they say, in addition, as is clear from these verses, this renewal of the covenant will be with both the houses of Judah and Israel, i.e., with both the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of the ten tribes. This clearly did not occur in Jesus' time when the ten tribes had already been dispersed. Jeremiah also states that at the time of this renewal, there will be universal knowledge of God, for they will all know me. Verse 33. This too did not occur in Jesus' day, but is rather a reference to the end of days. And so, again, they're, they're going to say that um, this is not something that uh, Christians can say is uh, bringing, being brought to pass with Jesus, right? Uh, they're going to differ on that. So you can go back and read that on your own. Um, uh, the website is h.com, Aish.com, ais and they have a Jeremiah uh, 3131 articles that's all you gotta do is just look that up i'm not going to read it here for you um if you have questions about it you're certainly welcome to write into me leave me comments on this youtube video or just ask me about it uh, if you want my uh ongoing perspective but for now that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight let's turn to the video on the question of what is a gentile we'll watch the video and when we're finished we'll simply dismiss in prayer you ready here we go Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and E-Bible. Copyright, Tetzay Torah Ministries 2015. All rights reserved. Okay, i got an interesting question for you tonight. What is a Gentile? Sounds pretty straightforward, huh? Well, let's see if we can find out an answer. I want to add a perspective to this answer that I feel was not yet covered in many of the answers that we find on e-bible, allow me to develop a background and then work towards my main point. It is true that from a simplistic Jewish perspective, all the world since the times of the patriarchs is now basically divided into Jews and Gentiles. In the times of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, Israel, the people, started out as direct descendants of the man called Jacob or Israel while those not legally related to Jacob were referred to in the text as foreigners, or aliens, or strangers, or sometimes sojourners. Often the word used to describe these non-Jacobites was goy, an all-purpose non-judgmental word designated one from the nations, with implications that they were other than Israel. Related to Goy is the word ger, often used to designate a stranger from the nations. To be sure, the contrasting Hebrew word ezrah often indicated native born sons of Jacob. The word Gentile was not supposed to be an emotionally charged term, but by the first century, history and the rabbinic writings attest to its normal use among Jews to designate pagans, heathen, idol worshippers, etc. By this time, instead of merely indicating those from the nations, some religious Jews viewed anyone who was a Gentile with suspects, supposing that surely those Gentiles could not inherit heaven the way Jews could. In practical, everyday matters, Gentiles were thought to transmit ritual impurity to Jews seeking to remain ritually pure, and these Gentiles were often accused of leading Jews into idolatry when close relations were formed. It is no wonder a shared social animosity and hostility developed between Jews and Gentiles, prompting Paul to pen his famous words in Ephesians two fourteen through 16 about the dividing wall of hostility, thereby killing hostility, etc. Since I normally move in and around messianic circles, it's not uncommon for me to hear Gentiles attracted to Torah refer to themselves as quote, no longer Gentiles, end quote, but now as quote spiritual Jews, end quote, in some way. Many times they base this on Paul's words found earlier on in this passage. Let's look at Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, end quote. Now, their logic infers that since Paul essentially calls these Gentiles from the nation's former Gentiles, that they must not be Gentiles any longer now that they have joined the commonwealth of Israel, per Ephesians 2.19, and indeed have been grafted into remnant Israel, per Romans 11.17-19. But to make this verse mean Gentile Christians are no longer Gentiles is confusing and unnecessary for two reasons as I see it. Number one, Paul will spend a significant amount of time in his letters championing Jewish and Gentile equality in Christ with the express purpose of repudiating the first century mistaken socio-religious belief that all Jews and only Jews can become genuine covenant members in Israel and be counted as saved. On the contrary, Gentiles as Gentiles are now children of Abraham, read Romans 4, 9-12. And number two, more to the point on a linguistic and hermeneutic level, Paul is simply stating to these Gentile Christians that they are no longer pagans, heathen, idol worshippers, etc. And that in Messiah, they need to leave that bankrupt lifestyle behind and put on the new life in Christ as gentile christians i'll close with this foundational quote from ephesians 4 17-24 and it's been truncated due to the lack of space here quote now this i say and testify in the lord that you must no longer walk As the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness." Head on out to iTunes and check out my podcasts that are available there. You can search for my podcast under the name Ariel Hanavi. And while you're at it, head on over to YouTube and check out my YouTube channel with all its videos. Make sure you hit the little notification bell to make sure you're receiving notifications because I upload new content weekly, even sometimes daily. And that'll do it for the video. Let's dismiss in prayer. I bless your name and I'm so thankful to be able to share these truths with other people around the world via the medium of the internet and YouTube and iTunes and podcasts and all these other great tools that are utilized uh, by you. Um, they're made available for us and uh, we're just going to use them for your glory. So continue to bring us together, um, continue to strengthen us as communities, help us to continue to press in, to know you, to love you, to serve you, and to be obedient to you and to be filled with your spirit so that we can be a witness for your kingdom. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen.